Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Paul has finally made it to Jerusalem. And what follows happens quickly, but we are confronted with this passage that is a bit challenging to discern, at least at face value. We'll have to dig in deep to understand what exactly is going on between Paul and the elders there at Jerusalem that he first meets. It's been three missionary journeys now to various places around Macedonia and Asia, and uh, Paul has seen great success. The church has started in various places where it did not previously exist. The Gentile church, those who were not of Jewish faith before, uh, was growing leaps and bounds, and he was going to Jerusalem, at least in part, to give a report on what he had seen what he had been part of in this mission. Um, There were strategic reasons for him to go back to Jerusalem beyond just giving a report. Uh, One, probably nearest and dearest to his heart, he had the desire to share Christ again with his countrymen. These were his relatives, his ethnicity. He wanted to share with them Christ. It had been five years since he had been there before, uh, and he had only been there a spotted few times since his conversion. So he had a heart for the Jewish people, even saying at one time, I'd give up my own salvation if I could just see the Jews saved. So he had a strong sense of calling to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. That drove him, even though many around him told him, Paul, don't go back there. Uh, But there's another reason he went that's uh, somewhat complex. But it boils down to he wanted to see the unity of the whole church bolstered, not just to be the Jewish church and the Gentile church, Uh, There were some unique features to the church's existence in Jerusalem, which we'll focus upon in a moment, but he wanted to see the whole of Christ's church unified. The fullness of the Abrahamic covenant would mean that people from all nations are recipients of God's grace. And so he came to Jerusalem to make sure that they were unified, and he brought a sizable offering to support the beleaguered believers in Jerusalem. So these are reasons for him coming, and we'll look at each of these, especially in building the context for what happens in the passage itself. Here now as I read God's holy word, Acts 21, I'll start at verse 17, and I'll stop at verse 26. This is the writer Luke speaking in this text as he describes what happens. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are also zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake, them, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. 
Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from that which is sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's bow together as I ask the Lord to help us understand and apply his word. Let us pray. Father, as we continue the study of the book of Acts, your inspired account of the expansion of your church, please give us understanding about what we are reading. Please help us to comprehend a bit of the context so as to interpret the actions of the people in the account. Give us a deeper appreciation for your very practical work of gospel transformation and provide us with sensitivity and discernment about patience with other Christians and zealousness to proclaim the gospel. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now maybe at first glance when you heard that passage read, it was confusing to you. What is Paul doing here? Is he compromising the gospel? Is he going back to Judaism by engaging in these customs and these practices? He has said that he'll give up his life for the gospel. Why would he at this moment possibly compromise? You know, some say, yes, Paul did compromise. He's a man who fell at this moment. The Lord overcame that, but he did compromise. Some scholars will say that. Now, most of the scholars will say, and I agree, Paul didn't mess up here. Something else is going on. But I think the situation is very unique and difficult for our ears in our, from our perspective to understand particularly the situation that was there present in Jerusalem. So to understand what is happening between the Jewish elders and Paul, some complex context has to be provided. Two contextual points to get us ready to walk through the passage. First, I want to give you a word about first century Judaism in Jerusalem. That's important for understanding what's happening. Second, I want to relay to you what I already mentioned a bit, the reasons Paul went back to Jerusalem. What drove him? Why was he, for mission purpose, going back to that place? Now first, before we get into the passage itself, it's important to have an understanding of the first century situation for Judaism in Jerusalem because it affects the Jewish Christians heavily during the time of the apostles. Now remember, Jerusalem at this time in the Roman Empire's history, the first century, Jerusalem stood as a symbolic capital of Israel. The Israelites still thought of themselves as sovereign in that Rome was just, they were pagan invaders and God would deliver them or they would be delivered at some point. And so Jerusalem was their autonomous city. At least they acted that way. They still had to pay taxes to Rome and other tributes to Rome. And from time to time, Rome would come in and crack the whip on them and require some kind of payment or exact some kind of punishment upon them. It was a terrible relationship. But Jerusalem stood out as Israel's capital. And what represented Israel the most in Jerusalem? High on a hill was the temple. And the temple was this constant sign to the watching world that we, the Jewish people, believe ourselves to be sovereign. And you may be under the thumb of Rome, but we're not for real. 
in our temple, in our temple worship, in our social structures around the temple, our own law within Roman law, our, our practices religiously and culturally, our ethnicity all tied up to this symbol of the temple to know that we are the Jewish people. Great pride within the Jewish people about Jerusalem and about the temple. In every Jewish person's life had some interchange with the temple and everything that related to it. Business was related to the temple. All sorts of commerce was related to it. Obviously, religious practice. By that time, however, most religious practice had become more, more like customs, things that they did to maintain their ethnic identity, to say, we're not Romans, we're not pagans, we are the Jewish people. So they went through these rites and these rituals um, to continue to hold fast to their identity, and it was important for their own solidarity that they all participated in some way. That's the heaviness of that culture, the strength of that culture upon the people that were engaged in it. So, think in these terms. When people become Christians, when Jews understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the things they learned in the scriptures, yes, they went from darkness to light, but they didn't just drop their culture. They didn't drop their temple practices. They still stayed engaged. In many cases, they would just see all the stuff they did before through the lens of Christ. We think that for the most part, the actual Passover, which had not come around again yet at this moment, would be something they wouldn't participate in. But there's so many other sacrifices and offerings and things that have to do with other features of their life. They became customary and more traditional than they were religious any longer or spiritual. That's how many viewed what happened in Jerusalem and the temple. So believers were in this odd place, a unique place in the history where they're transitioning from new life in Christ, still under the shadow of the temple and everything it said, and they were moving into maturity in Christ, but yet they still had all this culture around them. It wasn't like if you became a believer in Ephesus and you had the, the pagan temple of Diana there and you're going from ultimate false religion to Christ and you have to turn away from idols, literally. Turn away from all the, the sexual immorality related to temple worship. That was very distinct. But if you became a Christian as a Jewish person, now you're just reading in the fulfillment of Messiah who has come and raised again. And so that it's more of a transition out of some of the old traditions than it is an abrupt change, at least for those Jews who became Christians in Jerusalem. It was a little different if you were a Jewish person worshiping at a synagogue in Ephesus. The transition would be a little bit quicker and easier for you. But for Jerusalem, it was different, and we have to appreciate that when Paul comes back to Jerusalem and the elders confront him in a specific way, which we'll see in a moment. The other thing I want you to recognize, because the passage doesn't introduce it here explicitly, we just know about it from verses that come later. Paul is going back to Jerusalem because he wants to bring unity to a tense situation. There was some tension. He had been gone for a while. The Jews there were severely persecuted, and they were under a famine, and they were suffering. And during that time, they were in great need all the time. And they had heard of the church burgeoning and growing in other places. And there was probably some resentment among the common person about what was happening outside. So Paul wanted to come back and bring a unity to the church, to all Christians, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. And part of the way he would do this would by, be, by bringing financial support that they needed so desperately. Five years earlier, during the Jerusalem Council, 
he had taken up an offering in Antioch to help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. It says in Acts chapter 11, one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, and this is in Antioch, everyone according to his ability would send relief to the brothers living in Judea. That's the state Jerusalem's in. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So he had already come once and brought an offering to help relieve their suffering. Now, why were they suffering? There was a famine that happened. It's a marked famine in history. We know what happened during this first century. It lasted over 10 years. Now, the Roman state had a way to give welfare. It would help distribute food from a place that wasn't under famine to the place that was under famine. However, the Romans had no love for Judea. It was a constant um, antagonistic relationship. So the Romans sent very little welfare to Judea. Whatever welfare they did get, the Jewish people took and did not give to the Jewish Christians. There was even more animosity there between the ethnic Jews who had not become Christians and the Jews who had become Christians. So the Jewish Christians suffered the most when this oppression came upon them. They were in constant need. And so this was an opportunity for Paul to gather an offering and to encourage the Jewish Christians that the Gentile Christians love you and consider you or they are favorable and thankful to you for all you've given. And that he wants to show that to bring unity. We know this is the case because throughout the letters he writes when he's on his missionary journeys, he's asking churches to contribute to Judea. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians when he's writing a couple years before he gets to Jerusalem. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so he'd been telling this to other churches too, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. First day of the week is when they started to worship in the New Testament era. As he may prosper, give, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He didn't want to have a fundraising campaign when he got there. He just wanted to be able to pick up the offering and bring it to Jerusalem. He follows this up in his second inspired letter to the Corinthians when he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised. He has a very heavy burden for what's happening to the beleaguered Christians in Jerusalem. Later, when he writes in Romans, which is not too long before he gets to Jerusalem, he writes in Romans, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor saints among at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now, our text doesn't tell us that right when he met James and the elders and gives the report that he hands over a bunch of money bags to them. It doesn't say that. There would have been a lot to bring. Uh, That was part of what they carried with them in their baggage on those ships to get there, for sure. Because later, when Paul's standing before the Roman governor, listen to what he says. Now, after several, several years, I came to bring alms and to my nation and to present offerings. So we know that's a big part of why he's coming, to give those offerings for the purpose of bringing unity between the Jewish and Gentile churches, especially focused on the unique situation for Christians living in Jerusalem. So this sets the stage. I know it's a long stage to set, but it's necessary. Um, This sets the stage for Paul's interchange with James and the Jewish elders when he returns to Jerusalem. We will see in Paul's very careful actions here an important principle. For the sake of declaring Christ to everyone, which was a major part of what he was there for. For the sake of doing that, 
he is extremely careful to forbear with those who are not quite as far in their walk, in their maturity in Christ, and have all sorts of things working against them, so many barriers to faster growth. He is careful to forbear with them while at the same time not forsaking the gospel message. We see him do this, we can observe this, and we could perhaps draw some application in our own lives as we consider the actions and choices and things we participate in. Now, I'll tell you ahead of time, I won't tell you what those are exactly. This is a very unique case. I don't know that we'll, any of us will find ourselves in exactly this kind of a case. But in general, it will at least cause us to ask the question before we do whatever we do, either as a church or as individual believers, could this hinder the message of the gospel that God's called me to proclaim and live out? We'll see. Now, first, I want you to notice the unity of the church that Paul's so concerned with and the unity that's on display. It's an encouraging passage as it begins, for sure, as there's the practice of unity around the gospel. Look at verse 17. He finally gets to Jerusalem after all this long buildup. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So there was no division from the get-go. They were brothers in Christ. Um, And Luke is writing this, who's not Jewish, saying the brothers received us. Now, James and the elders were no doubt Jewish. Almost everybody in the Jewish church were Jewish. Maybe some Gentiles, but mostly just the nature of the density of the population of Jews in Jerusalem meant the church was predominantly Jewish. And here Luke says, when we got there, the brothers received us gladly. There's joy in receiving one another. They are united in the gospel. They're united in Christ. They're not united to Luke by ethnicity. They're related to him because of Christ. So from the very beginning, the reception is solid. The reception is, is wonderful. They are glad to have Paul with his company come there and they receive them gladly. And there is a unity that is shown here. There may have been tensions. We know there are because some things have been brewing. Um, there had been lies sowed about Paul, half-truths, that became so widespread that the elders there didn't really know how to handle it anymore. It was just, it was too big. So they had a request they were going to make of Paul to try to get things right so that he could preach the gospel. And that's going to come. So there's a tension. But even though there's a tension, they're able to receive them gladly and be happy to have fellowship with one another again. So after this initial meeting, the very next day, Paul gives his report, verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. So Luke is talking here in the first person. The following day, Paul went in with us to James. Remember, James was uh, the half-brother of Christ. He was the apostle, uh, or excuse me, he was the elder in Jerusalem who was like the lead elder. There was a plurality of them as we see. Went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Some scholars say that The Jewish Christian church had 70 elders. They were mirroring the Sanhedrin, uh, the non-believing Jewish side, by having 70 Christian Jewish elders. And so that may be the case. And so there's a large group of people here, and they go in to talk with James, who, by the way, you remember several years earlier, was a key part of the council they had to clarify the gospel. Remember there was the demand that people be circumcised to be saved, and the Jewish elders in the early church said, no, that's not the case. Circumcision is not for salvation. It's faith in Christ. Um, And gave some pastoral counsel in a letter that Paul then took. James was overseeing that, and here he is again these years later. Verse 19. After greeting them, 
he, Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He is telling them a testimony of all these people who had come to Christ. The gospel being preached and people had never known anything of of the Jewish background to Messiah and all the rest. Jesus was proclaimed and people came to faith. And this would evoke joy in anybody who hears it, this day included. When we hear people come to Christ, we are amazed at the work of God because it's supernatural. And notice what their response is in the first part of verse 20 showing the unity they have around this gospel message, around Christ. And when they heard it, heard what? Paul's testimony about what God was doing. They glorified God. So before they get to the the immediate pastoral concern, they want to give pause to praise God because the gospel's going forward. You're going to have differences among each other as believers, but if we pause every time we hear that another person has come to Christ or there's a movement where the church is growing, we should give glory to God. Because why? It's not the ministry of Paul. Notice the very careful wording of the apostle. He related one by one what? The things that he had done among the Gentiles? Not at all. The things that God had done among the Gentiles. Um, There's a kindred spirit about the gospel and the supernatural nature of the gospel. When you hear people are coming to Christ, if you're in the middle of an argument and you hear that, you're going to stop the argument and say, that's amazing. It's amazing every time any sinner comes to Christ because they cannot come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit moves them, convicts them of their sins, gives them faith to lay hold of Christ. So if you hear someone becomes a believer, I know there can be skepticism at times, but pause for a moment because if it's true that they've come to be a believer, it's the supernatural act. It's a mere, it, it, you could see the Red Sea split and that should make you stop in awe and you should hear a person turns from darkness to light or is turned from darkness to light and you should have that same kind of awe. And that's true for you. So if it's true for you and you know you could not conjure it in your life, if you hear someone else comes to faith in Christ, your first reaction should be, praise God. I mean, in time you'll know the truth of the matter, but every time a sinner comes to Christ, it's a supernatural work of God to save them. And so despite the tensions that had built, when the Jewish elders hear this report, these reports, it says, and when they heard it, they glorified God. They recognized the supernatural work of God in the midst of the Gentiles now especially. This shows the unity they have around the gospel. Now, you know that the bulk of the passage, which we'll approach next, this issue about Paul engaging in these Jewish customs, that issue is really related to Jerusalem and the specific happenings there. And we know that they are not saying that what Paul should do here in that context, is what every Christian should do. They recognize what they said back in the Jerusalem Council, that salvation is through faith in Christ. It's through believing on Jesus. Now, in that letter, they did mention something else. They had a bit of a PS on that letter, and you'll remember what it is, because they quote it again in verse 25. So in verse 25, instead of saying, and by the way, Paul, we've been thinking about it, we really think the Gentiles ought to pay more homage to what we do as Jews and participate in some of that. That's not what's being said. There's no attempt on the part of the Jewish elders to to Judaize Christianity. Just speaking about the situation they were in. So they refer, look at verse 25, to what they had written a few years earlier in the Jerusalem Council decision. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, believed in what? Have believed on Christ. There's unity in the gospel there. For those Gentiles who are Christians now, who have believed, We sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now that little 
pastoral note at the end of the letter from the Jerusalem Council, they're quoted, it reveals something about the culture of the Jews in Jerusalem that we have to appreciate as well. They were under great pressure with all these things that were going on around them and the the pagan worship and the, the sexual immorality that related to it. And many of the Gentiles were coming directly out of those backgrounds. And for the sake of their brethren, the Jews, who lived in those various places, they were simply saying, please abstain from these things out of deference from your Christian brothers who are Jewish. They were not adding to the gospel or saying you had to do this to be saved. They were just saying, yes, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Could you be mindful of those Jews who are around you who have for centuries lived a certain way and are very sensitive to these practices? So we see how tied it is to the times, and we can't understand the passage, what Paul does, without knowing a little bit of that. And so I've tried to give you a bit of that picture. Now, let's consider, knowing that they're unified in the gospel, that's not in question. Let's see what Paul does in response to the request that the elders make. He's very careful not to compromise the gospel message he preaches, But at the same time, he wants to forbear with where they are in Jerusalem, especially his Christian brothers and sisters who are dealing with a different situation than most Christians in the first century were. So after they are glorifying God for the great report, the second part of verse 20, please notice, the tone changes a bit, and they said to him, they've been waiting to talk. You could just sense that they really wanted to get to a, a practical matter that had developed. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. So Paul, since you've been gone, please notice, thousands of Jewish people have come to Christ. Now, they're going to remind Paul that this comes with baggage for them. It's challenging for them. Look what he says. They are all zealous for the law. Now, scholars debate about what this means. Every aspect of the law, what about the parts that are fulfilled by Christ? I think it means to say, in normal tones, usually they were speaking of the basic requirements for your behavior in the law, the way you practice Jewish customs and rites and so forth, and they appreciated all that because it was their tradition. And frankly, it wasn't abrogated completely in the sense that you didn't have to pay attention to it anymore when you became a Christian. It just should never be thought of as something you do to earn favor with God. So there they were, these Jewish new believers since Paul had last been there, and they're just letting him know, Paul, lots changed since you've been gone, and we have all these thousands of believers. Verse 21, and they have been told something. They have been told about you that teach all the Jews, about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. So we hear you're going to Ephesus, into the synagogue, you're preaching Christ, and then you're telling all the Jews, forget about Moses. And furthermore, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. We hear when you evangelize, you're forsaking all Judaism. Now, we know that's a lie, that slanderous twisting of what Paul was actually teaching. On each of these points, he never said forsake Moses. He just said Moses isn't the greater one, it's Christ. And what Moses teaches is a precursor to drive us towards Christ. It's not completely forget, erase, cut out the Old Testament or cut out the law. It's recognize the law's place and what it does and what it represents. Paul is very careful and nuanced about what he says concerning the law. When he attacks the law, he means to do so so that people don't trust in their actions or their obedience to be saved. That's the kind of teaching he would give. That's what he even said in the places that were like Ephesus or Philippi or Thessalonica, where there's a mixture of Gentiles and Jews listening. So he didn't teach it the way 
the rumor started in Jerusalem. Furthermore, telling them not to circumcise their children. Well, it had been understood and agreed that you didn't have to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. That was the Jewish decision of the Jewish church. But he didn't tell Jews they can't do this as a matter of custom. It just didn't mean anything anymore as far as the religious right goes. It wasn't a spiritually significant thing anymore because the covenant sign had changed. That's the way Paul taught it. It's interesting that Derek Thomas comments this way and I think does so well. Paul had nothing to say about circumcision from a religious point of view. It was a mere custom of the Jews, a national symbol of ethnic identity. It had been more than that at one time, but it was no more. It was simply one of the many customs that marked out Jews as a race. That's why it was important to them. He wasn't telling Jews, all Jews everywhere, don't do this. Just understand what it means and doesn't mean. And finally, this idea, it circulated that he was telling people not to walk according to their customs, the Jewish customs. There again, he warns against those customs. He warns about trusting in them or depending upon them, but he doesn't condemn them all outright. These are embellishments of things that Paul said that were meant probably by the ethnic Jews who had not come to Christ, meant to sow doubt in the mind of the Jewish Christians and to put Paul in a bad place with them so they wouldn't listen to him any further. So, what would be done? The horse is out of the barn proverbially. There's no way to get people to think differently about what they're hearing Paul to be doing. And by the way, isn't that a little bit of a reminder to us of how how insidious it is to put out a word about what someone said and misquote them or say something they didn't really mean. Because once it gets out and everybody hears it, it just perpetuates. And think about the day and age we live in now. Things get out on social media. I mean, you cannot get it back. How are the elders going to handle this situation? So we have to appreciate the struggle they had. I have no doubt that they're thinking to themselves at some level, this shouldn't be the big issue it is, but it is. And practically speaking, they have to deal with it. And now here's Paul. He's going to be public soon. Before he walks out, he needs to know what's happening out there. And by the way, Paul, we have an idea. We have an idea, something you could follow that will help the situation. We think, the best of our wisdom, that will help without violating anything about what you've said. Uh, It will fit in the context that I've just described. You could do this, and this will set you up for further gospel proclamation. I think that's what's happening. Now look at verse 22. What then is to be done, they say, after explaining the situation? They, the Jews, will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. So the elders tell him something um, that, they have, that they have come up with. We have four men who are under a vow. So these are four Christians, because this is a Christian elders talking about people in their midst. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. We know this is a Nazarite vow. Do you remember in Acts 18, Paul himself took a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vows were part of the Old Testament law code in Deuteronomy 6. They were optional. Um, With them, uh, you, you could volunteer to do them. They were usually an individual show of some kind of commitment towards some practice or a way to give thanksgiving to God for relieving you from something. Um, They could be done by men or women. Uh, They had specific time frames, and they had specific requirements and restrictions. In Deuteronomy 6, much of this is laid out. And the conclusion would be to to offer a sacrifice for Thanksgiving. This is key. It's not a sacrifice like the lamb looking forward to Christ. It was a thankful sacrifice, saying, thank you, God, for provision. That's what it meant. And that became a very usual practice 
for the Jewish people to commit to something, a customary practice, as it were. And so he's saying there are four men here. They can't afford probably to finish out their vow. So therefore, you pay for that. Come alongside them. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, those rumors, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. That's a way of saying appreciation for it, understanding what it is to the Jewish people. It's not saying you're following it to keep it for salvation. So Paul's being very careful in what he's hearing them say in order to decide what he'll do. Great care is taken here by him to do the right thing. Now, as you think about this, it's pretty complex. I know this is like, like you know, the fire and brimstone sermon you're used to every week. Kidding. But at any rate, in this portion, Calvin says some really helpful things that will allow us to understand what it is that Paul is doing here. Now, I, I tweak the wording a little only because sometimes when you read a long swath of Calvin, it gets you twisted around because of the translation. So I'll do my best, but try to listen because I think he, who is much wiser than I am, helps us understand the dynamics here. Having a vow upon them, he's now commenting on this text. Though these four be reckoned among the faithful, they're Christians, yet their vow was superstitious. So Calvin thinks at this point it's a bit superstitious for Christians to be doing this. Whereby it appears that the apostles had much trouble in that nation. He said it's pretty unique to this place. Which was not only hardened in the worship of the law through the long use of it. They had this heavy baggage with their coming to faith because of their background. But was also naturally stubborn and almost intractable. They were just a tough people to convince. Though it may be that these men were as yet but new believers and therefore their faith was just slender and scarce well-framed. Wherefore, the leaders of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church did suffer them to perform the vow which they had unadvisedly made. If you would have asked the elders, they would have said, you know, you don't need to do that vow. But they did it. As it relates to Paul, because he, w- he made this vow without violation of his conscience, he analyzed it and didn't think it violated anything about what he was teaching or believing. He didn't think it meant anything, probably. But for their sakes with whose error he did bear, he forbeared with them, participation was no issue to him. He was condescending to help them through this process. And in so doing, he was showing his alignment still with respect for the Jewish tradition. Notwithstanding, Calvin says, we must see whether this action was one of the indifferent ceremonies. In other words, they're ceremonies that they don't really mean anything, so they're indifferent. They make no difference. Notwithstanding, we must see whether this action was one of the indifferent ceremonies which the faithful might omit or keep at their pleasure. It's kind of it's a matter of Christian liberty. It seems indeed to have in it a certain things which did not agree with the profession of faith. So Calvin says, you know, this situation may, doesn't really seem indifferent. It seems like they shouldn't have done it. Then look what he says. But because the end, therefore, was thanksgiving, that last offering was the thanksgiving offering, and there was nothing in the rite itself repugnant to faith in Christ, Paul condescend so as to have opportunity to proclaim the gospel among the Jews. Therefore, Paul did that which he said of himself elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. He made himself a companion of those who follow the law. And he said that he was made all things to all men that he might win all. Finally, Calvin says, Paul did this action indifferently, so it were not done for religion's sake, but only to support the weak. But it was neither his intent to worship God with this right, neither was his conscience tied. But he did freely submit himself to his weak brethren. He had judged that by doing this, he wouldn't violate the gospel. 
In fact, he'd have opportunity to proclaim it all the stronger, and he would be able to uh, wipe out of the minds of some people skepticism about his devotion to his countrymen, and he was able to move on from there to do the thing God had called him to do in Jerusalem. It's interesting, John Chrysostom, who lived just a couple hundred years after this, there was a this understandable concern about this passage. And did Paul violate something? Did he? And Chrysostom says, condescension is what it was. Don't be alarmed. And Chrysostom usually spoke with many more words. He was saying, this isn't a, a matter to be worried about. It's all part of his condescending to help his countrymen come to Christ in the end. Notice the elders are not in any way telling all Christians they have to participate in this. There's something very unique to Christians living in Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, you probably know within 15 years of this, the Romans had enough and they destroyed Jerusalem and they wiped out the temple. Then the issue became less an issue. That's why it's so unique to this time frame and we won't experience exactly the same thing that our counterparts in Christianity experienced back in these days. We see what Paul did in verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself. That would have been a smaller uh, offering because uh, coming away from, uh, from so long away from the temple, any Jewish person would have to pay a tribute essentially to come. After he had purified himself along with them and went into the temple, now he had access to the temple itself, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So now he's really in Jerusalem. He got to Jerusalem, but now he's in the temple. And it's from the temple that he begins the final phase of his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. And he gains great audiences in so doing. Now I'm not saying, and the text isn't saying, that you should do anything you can to get a big audience to preach the gospel. No, no. It's very important to see the, the, the key principle. Extreme care must be taken to forbear with others without forsaking the gospel message. So it doesn't give a license just to do whatever it takes so you can talk to a bunch of people about Christ. If what you do denies the message you're about to preach, you shouldn't do it. Now, most of us will not find ourselves in a situation like this. I couldn't think of an example, really, that would help because they're, they're not, there's nothing that's one for one. The, the closest thing I remember experiencing a little bit, and again, it's not one for one. As many of you know, I grew up Roman Catholic and Italian. And so there are certain Italian saints that uh, say St. Anthony, and there will be these feasts and festivals that you'll have in Italian communities. And where I grew up in western New York, there were areas that were all Italians living there. And they would have these St. Anthony's Day festival type things. And they would be regular things we would go to as an extended family. And I remember after becoming a Christian, a little while after, I started thinking, especially because some people told me, are you going to go to that? That's a Catholic thing or whatever. I'm like, this is just an Italian thing. You can eat some Italian sausage and drink some Italian, you know, that's what I was thinking. That's how it worked. I'll leave that blank. But the point is, you would go to these things. And I remember being bothered by it a little bit because I didn't want someone to think that I wasn't a Christian somehow. And then I thought, nobody's thinking anything right now. They're just going to this festival. They don't even know what it's about. I thought there's something like that. Now, if your conscience is tweaked about doing something because you think it might violate the testimony you have in Christ, then don't do it. Listen to your conscience. But you should always be testing your conscience with the Word of God to decide if that's the case. That's one small personal example. There may be many things that you are faced with situations with your family members, traditions, um, things in the culture that you have to ask yourself, should I do this or shouldn't I? The thing that guides Paul is, is it a violation or a denial of the gospel of God's grace in Christ alone if I engage in this? And his situation is far more complex than most of what we'll deal with. So this is the question to ask yourself in sensitivity. Recognizing that people around you, other Christians oftentimes, they're not in the same exact place in their growth or understanding yet, 
You could be wrong, too. But maybe you're right, and they're just not there yet, and so you're forbearing with them, walking with them, to try to lead them into an area of greater maturity. I leave that general for you to discern how that might be applied in your life. For the sake of declaring Christ to everyone, extreme care must be taken to forbear with others without forsaking the gospel message. And I think we have that on display here with the apostle. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, I thank you for